0: So church, what I want to bring before you guys today is an encouragement in prayer. And I know that for a lot of us, we have heard teachings on prayer. The Bible is filled with prayer. There are no shortage of studies about prayer. And I love what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says that I want to stir you up by way of reminder And it is my desire here today that I would remind you that God hears prayer. That He answers prayer of His children. That is the reminder for us today. That God hears and powerfully answers the prayer of His children. And this has really been on my heart this week because we have heard a lot of good and powerful sermons from the Word of God exhorting us to be people of faith. Nick preached that last week in the morning. We heard Aaron preaching last week that at our meeting here that with God we we will do valiantly in this earth, in this world for the Gospel. And listen, we want people to be saved. Do we not? We want the Gospel to advance. We want to be men and women of holiness and pursuing God. We want to be people that 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 see people saved, and that we baptize people in this driveway again. We want to see that. We want to, to to see missionaries going from our church, going to the nations, taking the gospel to those who do not have access to it. We talk about this all the time. We want babies to be saved from the at the abortion mill. We pray for this. We want that. And as we heard a couple weeks ago, we want to be a church that provokes idolaters. And to be a church that turns the world upside down. And listen, we talk about this, we pray about it at times, that we desire that our children would step behind this pulpit and preach and that their children would step behind this pulpit and preach. We don't want to plant a church down here that only lasts for 5, 10, 15 years. We want to see a church planted upon the Word of God and the grace of God that continues on for several hundred years as the Lord tarries. But listen, none of this will happen if we are not a people of prayer. We need to be a people of prayer. And listen, it is good for us to gather on Wednesday nights as a church, which we do every week, to meet together, to pray, to cast our burdens upon the Lord, to call upon the name of the Lord that He would move and act and save. We do that on Wednesdays. And praise God, it's always a glorious time. And on Sundays, we pray. We pray probably five or six times during the time we meet together. We pray for the gospel to advance. That's something that we do, and that is good and right. We need to be doing that. But listen, we need to be individually men and women of prayer, private prayer. You know, if I were to ask you, how's your prayer life right now? I, I highly doubt that anyone would raise your hand and say, I got that all figured out. We need to be encouraged here. And I want to encourage you and press upon you to be seeking God in private in prayer, calling upon His name. We must be individual people of prayer and also gathering corporately. Listen, you you look through the Bible, you see in Acts chapter 3, you see Peter and and John going to the temple together for the hour of prayer, public prayer. We also see that same Peter in Acts chapter 10. He goes to the rooftop. In the afternoon, to pray. And what happens? He gets a vision. About what? The gospel going to the Gentiles? That God is going to save the Gentiles and graft them in to the vine? And we ought not despise normal, regular times of prayer. God moves upon prayer and people that are in prayer. We also see in Acts chapter 21, Paul the Apostle Gathering with the Ephesian elders on the beach. He he kneels with them and he prays with them. Corporately. We also see that same Paul in Acts chapter 9. When he's converted, what is he doing? He's praying. He's praying. He's a man of private prayer. And listen, Paul knows the importance of prayer. You read through the Bible and you see in every letter of his, he's doing two things. Telling the church that he's praying for them. Whether he met them or not. Right? The, the Colossian church, Paul never met them. But he prays for them constantly, he, he tells them. And we also see in Paul's letters that Paul is constantly asking for the churches to pray for him. To pray, so that, so that he would open up his mouth and boldly preach the gospel. Paul knew the importance of prayer, and he was a gifted man, was he not? And God called him, but he knew, he knew the importance of prayer. We see in Acts chapter 6 that the apostles would not give up the preaching of the Word of God, but they said that they must devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. They must be devoted to that. Another example we see in Luke chapter 2, an old woman named Anna. She's at the temple, she's a widow, day and night, and what is she doing there? Worshiping the Lord with prayer and fasting. She was a woman devoted to prayer. Not to mention Jesus Christ, our Lord. As He walked this earth, He was a man devoted to prayer. Even in the midst of ministry, that He was bogged down, as it were. People coming at Him from all directions. Pressing in on Him. And what do we see Him doing often? Deserting. To go be by Himself with the Father in prayer. And listen, it's, it's easy for us to get so wrapped up, even in good things, even in ministry, even pouring out our our life for the gospel to neglect prayer. But the Lord doesn't do that. Even He removes Himself, goes up on the mountain, isolates Himself in prayer. We must be with God in prayer. If you look throughout church history, you'll notice that men and women who we read about in the textbooks, or we read about in the missionary biographies, there were men and women of prayer. Luther was a man of prayer. Calvin was a man of prayer. Jonathan Edwards was a man of prayer. Spurgeon was a man of prayer. You go down the list, go down the line. But even those missionaries and those pastors that the world is not worthy of, who we never hear about, and they're out there, all over this world, Southeast Asia, South America. Northern Africa, the Middle East, laying down their lives for the gospel. We don't hear about them, but when we do, what do we hear? That they were men and women of prayer, missionaries of prayer. You know, when uh, if you ever watched Torchlighters, they have these cartoons of different missionaries, different people from church history, and there's one of uh, Gladys Allworth, and she was responsible for taking a couple hundred kids in China when when there was war going on and getting them to a safe city, if you've ever watched a documentary. And it's it's a cartoon. It's a true story of her. And oftentimes as she's with these children who are abandoned, that she's looking out over them they're constantly praying. They're constantly praying. Constantly praying. I've mentioned this before. I've been reading through the, the missionary John G. Patton, his autobiography, And this man is always in prayer before God. Always crying out to him. Crying out. He knows that his God hears him because he is his child. We ought to be men and women of prayer. Listen, my question to you is this Do you pray? Do you pray? In the midst of a busy life, do you pray? It's important. We know from Scripture that God is sovereign. We know that He has decreed all things, that the gospel will go forth, that the nations will bow the knee to Jesus, that those whom God has chosen, He will save. He will do that. That's the end, but the means is through prayer. It's the vehicle, it's the engine that drives evangelism. It's the means that God uses to send the gospel. And we see this in Acts chapter 13, do we not? That God has decreed that the nations are going to know about Christ, that He's going to save them. And we see in Acts chapter 13, we see a a small prayer meeting of some guys, not to mention Paul and Barnabas, and other prophets of this little insignificant church in Antioch. Maybe not a lot of people. And they're there, they're at a prayer meeting, they're crying out to the Lord, they're fasting. And the Holy Spirit says, "Send, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. And boom, they're launched to go to the ends of the known world, to take the Gospel. Prayer is the means. It's the vehicle. And we know this. And that's why it's my heart and desire to stir you up, to look at Scripture, to look and say, God answers prayer. And we must be people of prayer. And listen, the reality is this, that it's much easier to preach on prayer than it is to get alone with God and get on your face and cry out to Him to move and to work and to advance the Gospel. It's much easier to get some verses and to compile them together to give to you than to get on my face and say, Lord, please show me the meaning of the text. Open up the hearts of your people that they would know that you are God of prayer. It's much easier to do that. Why? Our flesh hates it. Our flesh hates prayer. We don't like to do it. But we must be people of prayer. How do you learn to pray? Maybe you've been a Christian here for some time, and your prayer life has never developed. Maybe you're a new believer, and you need to know, how do you develop a private prayer life? Well, I begin with this. I would say to you, the same way that my one-year-old daughter learned how to ride a scooter. She looked, watched other people do it, and then jumped on and started riding. And so what do we do? We look to the Word of God. We look to the prayers of the Bible and they're everywhere. The Bible is filled with examples for us to, to show us how do men and women in inspired Scripture pray. We're to look at these. We're to meditate upon them, we're to study them, and we're to begin to pray and start to develop a biblical understanding and having the mind of Christ in prayer. And so my desire today is to look at just one account. I thought about doing three accounts of prayer, and then I told Nick, uh, was it yesterday, that I would do two, and he goes, you're going to do both of those, there's no time for that. And then I got in my study again uh, yesterday and I said, you know what? He's right. I can't do three. I can't even do two. We'll just deal with one. And I feel no need to really uh, try to jam-pack everything in one teaching. And I could pick up again in a couple weeks when I preach again. And so that's that. So we're going we're, we're to look at Elijah. But first of all, I, wanna, I have three points here. Reasons for prayerlessness, promises in prayer, and then I want to look at it. And then I want to look at Elijah and his example. So reasons for prayerlessness. Why at times are we men and women who are finding ourselves prayerless? Why? Why is our prayer life often fluttering up and down, up and down, up and down? Well, I have three things here. This is not an exhaustive list. But I think first and foremost, it's because of self-reliance that we rely on the power of self way too much. Way too much. What did Jesus say in John chapter 15? He said, Without, apart from me, you can do a lot of things, most things, some things, do nothing. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And the amount of time we spend in private prayer is evidence... Of how much we depend on ourselves and not upon the Lord. Listen, you look at the book of Acts and you look at the early church, and they are people of prayer. They're not, they're not out doing ministry outside of prayer. They are men and women devoted to prayer, and that is what I want from us. It's what I want from you, it's what I desire for us that we would leave this place and become more men and women of prayer. And not rely on ourselves, but rely upon the Lord. Lean upon Him. Hard upon Him. Second reason of of prayerlessness is unbelief. Listen, we're going to look at some promises in Scripture to the children of God where God offers us great promises and we don't pray simply because I think we don't believe them. Of unbelief. And listen... We know that those who do not know Christ are those who never pray. Why? Because they don't even believe in Him. Psalm chapter 79, and verse 6 says this, Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you, and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. Those who do not know God are those who do not call upon His name because of unbelief. We need to believe the promises. We need to believe what Scripture says. We need to believe what God has has revealed Himself to be as a God who answers prayer. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. Number three, laziness. I've talked with some of you about this. Prayer takes effort. It does. Amen? It takes effort. There's reasons why you don't read in Scripture people laying on their bed right before they go to sleep and they're saying a few little words and they, as they doze off. We, we don't find that in Scripture. We find people either on their face crying out loud or like Hannah who's, who's at the temple of the Lord weeping and pouring out her heart before God. She's not yelling. She's just weeping and mouthing in her heart. But prayer is work. Work. It is. Sometimes it's physical work and it's certainly mental work to actually pray, to seek after God. And we don't do it because we're lazy and we're tired. Don't let the flesh do that to you. Fight against that knowing that the flesh wants you just to go to bed. Ah, just go to bed. you had a long day. Ah, you got to hurry up to work. Ah, sleep in a little bit longer. You deserve sleep. We ought to be people of prayer fighting against that. Isaiah 64, 7 says this: there was no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you, as Jacob did when he took hold of God and, 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 and wrestled with the Lord and said, I will not let go of you until you bless me. We need that kind of, of, of resilience, that kind of perseverance in prayer. Don't be self-reliant. Don't be unbelieving. Rouse yourself and take hold of God in prayer. There's great promises for us, church. There's great promises. I've been reading a book with a couple of brothers in here called "Practical Religion" by J.C. Ryle. A great book. And uh, I recently this week read his his uh, his chapter on prayer which I think really convinced me that I wanted to, to address prayer with us. And he says this about the promises of God in prayer. He says this, he says, There are exceedingly great promises to those who pray. What did the Lord Jesus mean when He spoke such words as these? Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who, that asks receives, and the one that seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. It's Matthew chapter 7. Or in Matthew chapter 21. All things, whatever you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Or also, whatever you shall ask in my name, this is Jesus speaking, that I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's John fourteen. He goes on to say, "What did the Lord mean when he spoke the parable of the friend at midnight, or the persistent widow?" That's Luke chapter eleven and Luke chapter eighteen. Think over these passages, says Ryle. This is not if if this is not an encouragement to pray. Words have no meaning. There's great promises for us as the people of God, as God's children coming to Him in prayer. And listen, these promises in prayer of ask and seek and knock and you will find. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it that the Father would be glorified. These are promises for the children of God. These are not promises for the lost world. These are not promises for those who have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. These are not promises for the wicked. These are not promises for the ungodly. These are promises for the children of God, those who have come to Christ by faith for forgiveness of sins. Those who have repented and believed upon Christ on His finished work on the cross. These promises are for us, the children of God. God will not hear the prayer of the wicked. He will not. And we're going to look at some passages in a minute. He will not hear their prayer. Now, we have to understand that when, it, when Scripture says that he will not hear the prayer of the wicked, or he does hear the prayer of the righteous, it does not mean that God is, is sitting there when, when those who are ungodly pray, and he's going, no, oh, no, no, I can't hear you. That's not, that's not what, what, what it means. It means that he's not hearing in, in the sense of hearing to answer their prayers. But for but for us as his children, he his ears are open to us. Flip with me over to, to Proverbs chapter fifteen. We'll come back to Elijah. Proverbs chapter fifteen. Hold your finger there in First uh, Kings eighteen. We're going to come back. But look over at at, at Proverbs chapter fifteen. I want to show you some verses here. I want to read a couple verses here. Let's start in verse 8. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to Him. So the sacrifice of the wicked certainly includes prayer. It's an abomination to God. Brethren, that's strong language. That is strong language. It is an abomination to God but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to Him. Uh, Look down with me at verse number 29, that same chapter. Proverbs 15, 29. It says, The Lord, Yahweh, is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. Listen, why is the the prayer of the wicked an abomination to the Lord? Because they do not come to, to the Lord through Jesus Christ. They do not come clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They come their own way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That certainly means salvation, also through prayer. The ungodly, when they pray to God, they come based on their own good merit. They come based on their sincerity, but they do not come through Christ. And listen folks, there's no other way to to the Father except through the Son. You must come through the Son, and the Son only. He's the only mediator between God and men. He's the only one who will hear the prayer. You must come in through Him. And that is what His sacrifice did for us. Was it not? It tore the veil. And as Hebrews chapter 10 says, that we can now come in to the presence of God through the veil, which is His flesh. We can come in. Because of what Christ has done for sinners like you and I. But my point is this, that He does not hear the wicked. He's far from them, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. Who are the righteous? We preached on this for, I don't know, four or five weeks. What does it mean to be declared righteous before God's eyes? I mean, it's it's the same as being justified, right? Being declared a legal term, being declared innocent, being declared in right standing with God. And that happens through faith alone in Jesus Christ. I hope you remember some of those sermons. They were not too long ago. And so God hears the prayer of the righteous. That's His children. Those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He hears them. And He hears them, not just hearing them audibly, but hearing to answer them. To answer and what do we know about being children of God? John 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 14 says that God gave the right to those to become His children who believed upon Him, who were born of God. They were, must be born again. And those that are born again by the Spirit of God and brought into the family of God are made children of God. We have the spirit of adoption, as Paul says, and we cry out, Abba, Father, Become people of prayer. God hears you, church, when you pray to Him. Do you believe that? You're His child. He hears the prayer of the righteous. That ought to encourage us to go to Him. Constantly leaning upon Him. We would be foolish. We would be foolish to carry the load ourselves, we would be foolish to carry our own burdens. We would be foolish to live in this world without constantly in communion with God in prayer. Aaron talked about last week the walkie-talkie, right? We go out into battle, and it's like having a walkie-talkie, constantly on, on, on the phone with those back home, with the chief, with the commander. We need more reinforcements. We need supplies. We need this. We need that. You would be foolish to go into battle without that. And we would be foolish as the people of God to go into war against the spiritual host of darkness of this world and not be in constant prayer to to the great king, to the commander, to the chief shepherd, to the Lord. We have these promises in Scripture. We ought to go to God in prayer. You know this. You've, You've read these texts. You've heard this before. Go to Him. Go to him, but you must go through Christ. You must go through him as we enter into his presence. So now I want to go to Elijah and look at this example of prayer. So as, as we, so go back to First Kings eighteen. So as we as we think about learning how to pray, what to pray, what should we say in prayer, what what ought we to do? I want I want to look at this account. This uh, I had a a few different accounts to look at, and I I really I really like this account in scripture. I think it is an awesome text. I think we see God glorifying His own name, and I. I enjoy it. I enjoy reading about Elijah, but I think one of the reasons why I chose this is because the New Testament talks about him, and we read him in James, and and, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but I th- and then we'll pull some application here. But I want to I want to set the stage for you here, and this is my third point. So I don't even know how long we've been going for, but I didn't plan on taking a long time. But um, I want to I want to look at this account with us. So the stage is this. King Ahab, we see at the end of chapter 16 in 1 Kings, King Ahab is king over Israel. The, the, the nation is split in two. got the northern kingdoms, the southern kingdoms. Ahab, we read in verse number 30 of chapter 16, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. This king was wicked. Why? Well, the next verse says that he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And then we read in verse 33 of chapter 16 that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This man led the nation into idolatry. to, to, To abandon the true and living God and to worship idols. And so we get in verse or in chapter 17, we come in, and, and then we hear of, of Elijah. Of Elijah Elijah's just dropped in into the story. Boom, here he is. No introduction, no anything, Elijah. And Elijah comes in, and if you have an ESV Bible, I think this is kind of funny, I just want to point this out. The little heading on the top, it's not inspired, it's not the Word of God, but it's the editors helping us to understand what's going on. And what does it say in your Bible? What does it say? Uh, chapter 17, just the, the, the title right there. Elijah predicts a drought. Yeah, it says Elijah predicts a, a drought. He doesn't predict one, he actually commands one. It says it's actually going to happen. I think that's just, it's just kind of interesting. It's kind of a bad title. He doesn't predict it, he just says it's going to happen. And we see that right there in, in verse 1. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. That's not a prediction. That's, that's him telling him what's going to happen. And I just want to point that out. And so Elijah, Elijah says there's going to be a drought here. And why? Because the people have abandoned Yahweh. And the drought is a sign of judgment upon the people. That they have deserted God. And they've served idols. And then we get down in this section, which I want to talk about, where Elijah and these prophets of Baal, 450 of them, they go up on this mountain. In a sense, in a way you could say they maybe have like a contest. Okay. We're gonna go up and we're gonna see whose God is really God. These false, these false gods or Yahweh, the Lord, whose God? And so they assemble up on Mount Carmel. And he says there in verse 20, he says, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. If Yahweh is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. The people didn't answer Him a word. And then the scene is set here. They, they, take, two dif- they take two bowls. Oh, I want to actually back up a minute. When, when Elijah says that there's going to be a drought, this is significant. Because Baal is the god of the weather. He's the storm god. So, if, so, so him saying that it's not going to rain is, is an affront, an attack right on this false god. This god has no uh, power over the weather. The Lord controls the weather. But Baal is the storm god. And so Elijah says, no rain. And, and so I wanted just to, to mention that. That's going to be important here. So we get the two bulls. They have all the prophets gathered. They're all gathered around. They slice up. The first bull put on the altar. The 450 prophets of Baal. And Elijah says, in verse 24, uh, he says this. He says, "Um, And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, He is God. Why is that important? Again, Baal, the Canaanite god, this false god, is the god of the storm of the weather. So he should be able to strike lightning down, bring some fire, and consume the sacrifice. No problem. And the people say, it is well. Of course we can do that. Our God is a God of the, of the weather. No problem. And so what do we see? He says, choose for yourself one bull, prepare it. Now let's look at verse 26. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal. They're praying to him, calling upon his name from morning until noon, and saying, Baal, answer us. What do we see? There was no voice. No one heard. And they limped around and cried around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah began to mock them. I love Elijah's holy boldness. And he begins to tell them, cry aloud, he's a god. Maybe he can't hear you. You've got to lift your voice a little bit. Or he's either musing, or he's relieving himself. Your god's out going to the bathroom. I and mean, this is a straight mockery. <laughs> your God's on the toilet. You gotta, you, you gotta lift your voice up. Or maybe He's on a journey. Or perhaps He's asleep and must be awakened. And they call upon His His name. They're cutting themselves, spilling out their blood. And as noonday passed, no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And how sad it is for those who put their trust in false gods. Made me think a lot of Buddha and the false god that is, that is all over Southeast Asia. And there's often these depictions of the sleeping Buddha. And how sad it is that people worship him. That he's sitting there sleeping and he can't hear the prayers of the people. Or these gods, the, the, the over 300 million different gods in Hinduism. And their statues and people cry out to them and throw money at them. And bow down to them. They cannot hear and cannot deliver. And how sad it is when Americans bow down to the god of money. And bow down to the government. And look to the government for help. And look to... Their job for help, or satisfaction, or their money, or the bank account, or whatever it is. The comfort, the ease in life, the cars. And cry out to that to save them and satisfy them. And I want to just make this point, is that we don't have statues here in this country necessarily. But no doubt, people are out here calling out to their God, and their God is not answering them. And then we get Elijah Elijah comes in, he draws the people in, he puts the stones in order, he rebuilds the altar of the Lord, <laughs> he cuts up the bowl, puts the bowl on the altar, and what does he do? He says, fill four jars with water, verse 33, and pour it out on the burnt offering in the wood. Dump, it, dump water all over it. Not one time, not two times, but three times. And may we see here the holy boldness of Elijah to magnify the Lord. He is bold. He's bold to do that. Why? So God alone would get glory. No human gimmicks here. Nothing. You think of George Mueller. And, and we've talked about him. This man was a man of prayer, relying fully upon the Lord. Would tell no one what he needed, but but, but he says in his autobiography that he did this in order to see that the people of God would know that God answers prayer. This is, this is bold. Elijah's dumping water. Elijah, don't you know that this has to light on fire? And it's soaked. And he dug a big trench around it and it's just full of water. Listen, this is not wise to do. Amen? This is not wise. But he is concerned with the glory of God and exalting the name of God. That we would have boldness to do, <laughs> to do this and to rely on the Lord. And then we get his prayer. So it's set up. His, his bowl is there. The other sacrifice is still there. The false gods of Baal did not answer. And then Elijah comes and he prays. And he cries out. And he says in verse 36, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that You are God in Israel, and that I am Your servant, that I have done all these things at Your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that You, the Lord, are God, and that You have turned their hearts back. And God sends the fire down and he consumes it, all of it. He answers Elijah's prayer. Now I want you to notice his prayer is simple. he, he, He does not think that he's going to be heard for as many words. He comes in and prays simply, to the point. He does not use vain repetition. as the false prophets did, and as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 how to pray. He's to the point. I want you to notice a few things here. First, that He pleads for the glory of God. He pleads for the glory of God. He says, let it be known this day that you are God. He wants God to be glorified. He wants the Lord to be magnified. And this is the very heart of Christ in his teaching upon prayer. And we get that in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus teaches us to pray, Hallowed be your name. The heart of Christ in prayer is that God would be lifted up, glorified, separate. That the people would regard the name of God as holy. Not, not at the top of a list of gods. You have all these false gods and Lord just put yourself on the top of the list and make sure that everyone knows that you're number one. That's, no, that's not the idea. The idea is that God would be in a separate category. Not on the top of a list of false gods, but His own God. Or, or, or in His own category. He's separate. He's not like anybody else. Anything else. He alone is God. As we see in Isaiah constantly over and over again, that God's name would be magnified and would be another category. We have to pray this way. and God is pleased to answer such prayer. Prayer that is concerned for His glory. Lord, answer us that people would know that You are God. That You rule and reign in this earth. When we're concerned for the glory of God, God is pleased to answer those prayers. I want us to also see that He pleads for the edification of the people. That's what He says. He says, Answer me, Lord, verse 37. Answer me. Why? That. That's an important word. That this people may know that You, O Lord, are God and that You you have turned their hearts back. Listen, this is what we talk about a lot of, of order and argument in prayer. And sometimes as parents, we like to mess around with our children. When they ask us for things, we want to know why. Dad, I want this. Why? Tell me why. Why do you want that? What is the reason? And the same way in Scripture, when we come to God in prayer, we don't just ask Him things arbitrarily. We give Him reasons why. We tell him, why? Lord, answer me. Why? That the people may know that you are Lord. That you are God. Answer this prayer so that people would turn from their wickedness and turn to Christ. God is pleased to answer those prayers for the edification of the people. Flip with me real quick to Psalm chapter 67. Psalm 67. I might have done what every preacher should never do is tell people that they're going to be short. And then go long. I don't know. <laughs> it's okay. Psalm 67. I, I, I want to show you guys this. On this idea of having order and argument in prayer. Now you you've may have heard me pray this. I pray this a lot. And I love these two verses in scripture. I love them. I love this psalm. Psalm 67. Verses 1 and 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. What's going on here? This is, this is a prayer for God to, to be gracious to us. God, give us your favor. Give us what we don't deserve. Give us grace. Bless us. Bless this church. Bless these people. Bless our efforts out in the community. Make your face to shine upon us. Give us divine favor. Why? That His way, that the way of salvation may be known on earth. Lord, that your saving power would be made known among all nations. And listen, it's good to pray this way. It is okay to pray, Lord, Bring us material blessing in this church that we may that we may take the gospel out to the nations. Lord, we have no money in the bank account. Please bless us so that we could send people, so that we could buy Bibles for evangelism, so that we could buy gospel tracts. Lord, that the nations would know that you rule and reign. That the gospel would be be made known that the saving power of Christ would be magnified and known in the world. It's okay to pray that way. And that's that's at the end of the psalm here. it, It says that the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. We will have abundant crops in the context here. God, bless our crops. Give the earth its increase. Why? That we may take the gospel out. But to pray this way, magnifying God in, in, in order and argument and prayer. So back to Elijah. I want you to notice now that as he prays, God hears and answers him immediately. Now listen... I'm not going to tell you that God will answer your prayers immediately. Oftentimes, He doesn't. Listen, this brother has been praying for years, for years, three three years or so, to have you guys here to meet Noemi and you and little baby Nick. Praying for three years. And you know what? God didn't answer this brother immediately. And we've prayed for Dozens of women, hundreds of women down here. And they, our prayers were not answered immediately, but I'll tell you what, God hears. God heard them, and you're here. Praise the Lord. We're very grateful for that. Listen, folks, our God hears. He hears, and He heard Elijah. And you need to know this, that when you're praying, oftentimes it felt this way, you're, you're praying alone and like you're talking to a wall. That's not true. Your God hears you. He hears. He sees the groaning. He sees the suffering. He sees the affliction. He hears, he hears the moaning. He hears your tears as they're being shed. And He hears your prayer. You need to know that. Our God, who we speak to, He's not a God who who, who, who sleeps or slumbers. He's not as these false gods out here that cannot hear, they cannot answer, they cannot move. Our God is one who hears the cries of His children. And we see that all throughout Scripture. Read Read the beginning of the book of Exodus. God hears, He sees, He knows the groaning of His people. And Scripture is full of accounts where God hears. And I just want to point out to you that as Elijah prays, God answers. And that should be enough for us. That He is a God in the business of answering prayer to the glory of His great name. What does this mean for us, really? What are are we to do? Because if you know, Elijah had a special office as an old testament prophet he had a special ministry from the lord are we to go out and call down fire upon the enemies of god no are we to go out and pray that god would bring rain and control the weather no people do that false teachers do that right now they claim that they can control the weather is that what we're to go out and do No, not at all. But what did James chapter 5 teach us? I want I want you to go there. Go to James chapter 5 as we wrap this up. What is the point? And this is what I want to just again reiterate to us that you know this is true. But we need to hear it again and again and again. Look at what it says at the end of verse 16. It says, The prayer, James chapter 5, the end of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Listen, what does the Scripture teach? That the prayer of one righteous person has great power as it is working. Or as I memorize it in the New King James, it avails much. The prayer of one righteous person, the prayer of one child of God, One child of His, fervently crying out to Him, has great power. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your prayers matter? Do you really believe that? That we could sit here in this house and we could pray for the gospel work going on in India or in Lebanon or in Mexico or South America or North Korea and that it actually has power? It's actually effectual unto God's work and plan of salvation? Do we believe that? The prayer of one righteous person has great power. Why? Because you're a child of God. And when you pray the will of God to the glory of God, God hears those prayers. And listen, Elijah was a man with like nature as as us. What is James teaching us? Elijah wasn't some crazy, uh, well he was crazy, but Elijah wasn't wasn't some superman God himself? No, he was, he was like you and I. Listen, if you if you read that account later on, Elijah stumbled in his faith. He was weak. After he had this great victory, he goes off hiding from Jezebel and he tells God, God, I'm no greater than my father, just kill, let me die now. He was a man who wavered. He was a man with a like nature. As you and I. Listen, I love what Paul Washer says, and he says this a lot, and it's, it's true. There are no great men of God. We think that. Oh, that's such a great man of God. Spurgeon, oh, what a great man of God. Whitfield, what a great man of God. There are no great men of God. And I agree. There's only weak, pitiable men who believe and lean hard upon a great and mighty God. Elijah was just a man like you and I. He was just another human being. But his prayer life was fervent. And that's what James says. He prayed fervently. He was a man of fervent prayer. He was a man in communion with God. And his prayers had power to work. And I want you to know that, and to believe that in your own prayer life. That when you close the door and you get on your knees and you seek God for help, that He's actually hearing you. That when we pray for babies to be saved, God hears that. And when we pray for souls to come to Christ, God hears that. And He's brought some of you in here because we've labored in prayer. And He's and He's given us the fruit. He has been gracious to us. He's been gracious as we've gone door to door. As we go to UNLV. As we go to the abortion mill. As we go downtown. Some of you are in here because we have pleaded with God to give us souls, give us people. Save, Lord. Save. He hears and He answers. I want to encourage you in that, brethren. Seek after God in prayer. He's a god who hears the cries of his children? I want to. I want to end with this. Now, the morning and evening devotional from Spurgeon. If you, I don't know if you read that or some of you do, or you, you've definitely heard of it. This this morning, May twenty fourth. I'm pretty sure that's the date. <laughs> it's on prayer, and I want to read this to you as we close. Listen, I want you to find encouragement in this. This is based on Psalm 66, verse 20, which says, Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer. Spurgeon says this In looking back upon the character of our prayers, if we do it honestly, we shall be filled with wonder that God has ever answered them. There may be some who think their prayers worthy of acceptance, as the Pharisees did, but the true Christian is a is more enlightened looking retrospect, looking back. And the true Christian weeps over his prayers. And if he could retrace his steps, he would desire to pray more earnestly. Remember, Christian, how, number one, cold, thank you, brother, your prayers have been. When in the closet you should have wrestled as Jacob did, but instead thereof your petitions have been faint and few far removed from that humble, believing, persevering faith, which cries out, I will not let you go unless you bless me. That's what Jacob said. Yet, wonderful to say, God has heard these cold prayers of yours, and not only heard, but answered them. Reflect also how, number two, unfrequent have been your prayers. Unless you have been in trouble, And then you have gone often to the mercy seat. But when deliverance has come, where has been your constant supplication? Yet, notwithstanding, you have ceased to pray as you used to. But God has not ceased to bless. When you have neglected the mercy seat, God has not deserted it. But the bright light of the Shekinah has always been visible between the wings of the cherubim. Oh, It is marvelous that the Lord should regard those intermittent spasms of importunity which come and go with our necessities. What a God is He thus to hear the prayers of those who come to Him when they have pressing wants, but neglect Him when they have received mercy, who approach Him when they are forced to come, but who almost forget to address Him when mercies are plentiful and sorrows are few. Let His, listen, let His gracious kindness in hearing such prayers touch our hearts, so that we may go forth and be found praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. What is Spurgeon telling us here? We should bless God and be encouraged that oftentimes, it's true, our prayers are cold and our prayers are infrequent. We don't come as often as we do. But God is so gracious to us, brethren, to answer our prayers. And may that encouragement drive you to the throne of grace to be men and women of prayer. See the mercy and kindness of God to hear us to hear us and to answer us. Because it's not based upon our performance, it's based upon His grace and kindness toward us. May that love, that steadfast love He has for you and I, drive us to our knees to call out to Him in prayer, knowing that He is a God who powerfully hears and answers the prayers of His children. Let's pray.